Welcome to Cosmophonia. I'm Meredith. And I'm Gabe. And today we're talking about the song Blue Moon. Because this is one. Maybe. Depends on who you ask. It's a big month. It sure is. It's a month with two full moons in it. Yes. And since we release our episodes on every full moon, this is an exciting month for us. Yes. Our second episode of the calendar month, Mm. which makes this a a blue blue moon. moon. (laughs) 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 So appropriately... We decided to do this song mm-hmm. called that. Yep. I guess we should maybe address the blue elephant <laughs> of the room, which is what the hell a blue moon <laughs> actually is. Yeah, that's a very good question. And it depends on who you ask. And actually, this brings up some of my pet peeves about information. Um, which also came up in the uh, the Moonlight Sonata episode where people just repeat this information over and over again as if it really, really matters. So uh, here's the story that I read. If you go on Wikipedia, it will tell this to you as if it is like, you know, gospel truth. Well, that, and, and Wikipedia, of course, knows yes, all of the truth. Wikipedia is very interesting in that it's kind of biased towards old information like old understandings or like solidified understandings of things and anyway it's good it's good but this particular one i'm i'm not so sure about so apparently according to wikipedia and according to a actually a very good popular science article that came out back in 2012 that i read that we can link in the show notes um the first recorded definition of the astronomical blue moon that we can find like people have said it's been around before that but the only the first thing that we can find that's written down is from 1937 i believe it's like the main farmer's almanac or something where someone decided you know what sometimes in one season there are four full moons and i am going to decide that the third out of the fourth full moon is called the blue moon. Because, of course, the term blue moon has been around for a long time as a metaphorical term for something that's never going to happen, right? The moon is never blue, so it's never going to happen. Or if it does, it's going to be extremely rare, like there being four full moons in a season, right? So that's what Wikipedia says it's called, despite the fact that about 10 years later, apparently someone misinterpreted what a blue moon is and said that it was when you have two full moons in one month, the second one is the blue moon. And if you just ask anyone on the street, that's probably what they'll think it is if they even have ever heard of this being a thing. So... I ask you two things. Does it really matter? (laughs) And if so, why? 
Yeah, and I also think it's interesting because this is one of these kind of astronomical concepts that is almost tangentially astronomical. Mm -hmm. I mean, calendars and astronomy are deeply related. And in fact, the seasonal definition kind of gets at something interesting because seasons themselves are defined astronomically on the basis of where Earth is in its orbit. And actually thinking back to our last episode or two and this idea of resonances and simple relationships between things, it's kind of interesting to think about how the nature of the moon's orbit relates to the Earth's orbit around the sun and how those timings might harmoniously agree or not. And in general, they don't agree. But it is kind of interesting to think about the idea of how many lunar orbits might there be over the course of an astronomical season. And then you get this idea of a blue moon, which is not unrelated, perhaps, to the idea of a leap year. And then that leads to, you know, the the calendar that we use today and this sort of not more modern definition of the blue moon, this, but the more colloquial one that we have of the twice in a calendar month, where again, it's this kind of noticing a relationship between a form of astronomical time and a form of human-made time that may or may not be meaningful or useful, mm. um, but in any case has acquired some kind of mythical meaning at the very least in terms of this idiom mm -hmm. of once in a blue moon. Yeah, I think that probably one of the reasons why the twice in a month full moon came to be more popular is because I think that people do tend to take the calendar, which is really kind of a human artificial invention. So I mean, of course, as you mentioned, the seasons are, can be defined astronomically, but again, they're not really how we tend to colloquially talk about them. We were just talking about this the other day, yeah. right? So we tend to say like, oh, summer is June through August, when astronomically summer starts at the solstice, so, you know, mid, late June, right? And we would say summer's already started by then, at least where we live. And certainly um, if you're in academia, summer starts the day school ends. Exactly. So, <laughs> so early May. <laughs> and now and now we're in early September and school has started again and that makes it the fall. Actually, it's August, <laughs> late August. Oh, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> Who knows it's what good, time it is? Good, yeah. I am obviously a reliable source on all <laughs> matters related to calendars and time. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> Voice we, we live according to the academic calendar, which again is another human construct entirely. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I think that it makes people notice things more when it's like two full moons in one month rather than the third out of four full moons in it. Uh, I presume astronomically to find season. Like nobody's going to really notice that unless you are kind of attuned to astronomical goings-on, which brings up the interesting fact that although the blue moon can certainly be interesting and, you know, useful for people in general, it's not necessarily a thing that astronomers care about, right? No. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to speak for all astronomers, but uh, no. No. 
In fact, I don't think in all the years that I taught astronomy, I don't think I ever even mentioned the concept of the blue moon. Right. Every now and then students would ask about the phenomenon of the supermoon, mm. right? But that's a separate thing. Sure. Um, Actually, I do think that this one is a supermoon too. I do believe it is a blue supermoon <laughs> or a super blue moon. Yeah, I think it's super blue yeah. moon. I don't know. At least the internet thinks so. I'll admit I haven't confirmed this myself, but... Yeah, I think they're probably right on this one. I mean, yeah. <laughs> the moon seems pretty super to me every time I see it. Aww. So, aw, yeah. yeah. It's nice. I like the moon. We do like the moon. And maybe that's why people wrote this song. Yes, <laughs> I think so. And And I, you know... You might at this point be thinking, well, what does that song actually have to do with the moon? Well, I think it has as much to do with the moon as the concept of the blue moon having to do with, like, astronomical understanding <laughs> of space or of the moon. Like, it's really coming from a human perspective and kind of reflecting your own state of mind off of your natural environment. So... I feel blue, so the moon is blue, or I feel like suddenly everything has become gold, and then when I look at the moon, it just seems like it's reflecting my inner state, right? Which is kind of what the song is getting at, I think. Yeah, and it, it, it also parallels our tendency to anthropomorphize, so the moon, which is already home to the man in it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so, like, the moon, which we think of as a kind of companion if not to us then at least to the sun i mean that's a concept that's been around since forever mm. so the idea that the moon has some kind of sentient presence uh that might reflect our own mm. feelings makes a lot of sense well i like that little poem i see the moon the moon sees me the moon sees someone i want to see Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> i forget who wrote that but it's well, cute that is cute talk about where the song came from maybe yeah sure yeah because i guess it wasn't just that someone woke up and we or we as people collectively decided yes there shall be this song about an anthropomorphic empathizing moon <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um that's true although if you like look up the song in some sources like on the internet it will list it in under genre as traditional despite the fact that we at least we think we know who wrote it yeah although that is it is interesting that it it, it there's a there is a truth about the song which is mm -hmm. that at this point it has been performed by so many people that it practically is a folk song at this point even mm -hmm. though yes attributions albeit yeah. complicated yeah 
I mean, it's, I guess you would say it's part of the Great American Songbook, right? Which, I mean, who owns those songs, really? You know, they're (laughs) ubiquitous in all of popular music. Like, that's kind of the, one of the defining sets of songs in American culture, um, including this one, like, as we mentioned, everyone has done it in every genre of pop music you can think of. Yeah, though the estates of Cole Porter and Rogers and Harvey <laughs> would certainly con- <laughs> contest the idea that no one owns it. They certainly would. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so this morning I went to the library and I checked out all of the books about Lorenz Hart and especially about his collaboration with Richard Rogers, um, which they worked together for... I don't know, like 30 years, writing songs for Tin Pan Alley and for Broadway, and then they went into Hollywood and had some contracts with MGM. And the story goes that during one of their contracts with MGM, they were out in Hollywood, this is like 1933, I think, they were working on some film called Hollywood Party. Actually, like, when they were there, they were, like, working on all kinds of films, some of which got made, some of which did not. It was, like, a whole messy time, and it's impossible to, like, put your finger on the actual timeline of when any of this stuff was done, because apparently they were writing songs all the time. We can tell from, you know, from their anecdotes and as well from copyright information that they wrote a bunch of songs, and it's unclear, like, what film, what song was written for, and, like, some got used, most didn't. And there's a whole, like, story about this song, which is apparently they wrote it originally for this movie, Hollywood Party, and it had entirely different lyrics. It was supposed to be, like, someone's bedtime prayer, where she is praying to God to, like, give her her big break so that she (laughs) can become a star. Seriously. Um, That movie was never made. The the thing was never (laughs) recorded. Um, So then... They decide to recycle the song for the next another film that they're working on called Manhattan Melodrama. <laughs> so <laughs> man, you have a Hollywood party turning into Manhattan Melodrama. There's yeah. some East Coast West Coast thing happening here that there absolutely is. I mean, like Rogers and Hart started out in in the Manhattan, and then they, I don't know. Anyway, uh, so they wrote. Apparently, Lorenz Hart wrote different lyrics for the tune that was about like the hustle like i don't have time to breathe i gotta sip my coffee and like go on the subway and my bosses are like running me into the ground can you imagine those lyrics with that tune isn't that strange i gotta hustle i got a deadline to meet (laughs) the trains aren't running on time (laughs) (laughs) well the uh producer didn't like it so uh they wrote a third set of lyrics that is a is called the bad in every man. Oh God! <laughs> about how men are bad. Seriously, but that one made it in. That was the actual first recorded uh, copy of that song in Manhattan melodrama, which did get made, and it was, I think, fairly well received. Although nobody remembers it anymore. Um, but the story goes. And there are actually a lot of different versions of this story, so I I feel like it's not, you know, definitive how this actually went down, which makes me skeptical about some of this, because it's like, 
I could go on, on this whole tangent about the state of scholarship on musical theater and on, you know, Tim Pan Alley and all of that stuff. It's, uh, it's very anecdotal. So it's based on, like, what people remember and what people have written down about what they did or what people they knew did. And there are very few people who go back and are like, I want to examine this critically and see if this is how it actually happened. So I don't know. Maybe that's coming into play here. Maybe not. Um, I could read multiple versions to you of how this story went, but essentially what they say is that uh, one of the, the publishers they were working with came to Rogers and Hart and said, this is a really good tune, but I think it, in, in order to have popular appeal, you need to put some like generic romantic lyrics to it. And Lorenz Hart was like, ugh, seriously? You mean like Blue Moon or something? And they're like, yes! And he was like, eye roll, basically. But then he did it, and then they published it just as a standalone song, and it took off, right? So that was around, I think, 1934 when they published it as Blue Moon, right? Okay. Okay. <sighs> Oof. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, it got recorded, and apparently it was used as a theme song for some radio drama and a radio program, and got super popular now. Should I tell the other part? There's a twist. There's a twist. <laughs> okay, so when I was doing research for this, I came across a website that was published in 2018 by a woman named Liz Roman Galise. I think it's Galise. It might be Galisi or something. I apologize if I'm saying her name wrong. But this website's entire purpose, it's called bluemoonsong.org. This website's entire purpose is to argue that this woman's father, Edward Roman, wrote the song Blue Moon and that it was essentially plagiarized by a variety of people in order to get it to Rogers and Hart. And that he wrote the lyrics as they originally appear, more or less. This website is very extensive. Like, it's very well written. Like, fairly well written. Um... But it includes a lot of documentation, at least as much documentation as she was able to find. And it was interesting to me because I'd never heard of anyone bringing this up before, but here's the gist of it. So she says that her father, when he was a teenager in 1931, wrote the song. And she also found other songs that he wrote around the same time, so it's not unheard of that he could have written a song. And then there's this guy named Jack Mahoney who worked in Tin Pan Alley and decided around that time that he was going to do a startup business venture where he would advertise in the paper and have people send in songs that they had written that they, you know, thought were good enough to publish. He would publish them and they would get the money. The twist is they had to pay him in advance a not insubstantial sum of money. Um, so she actually has a documentation that he sent in, that uh, Edward Roman sent in a song called Blue Moon. It's unclear whether it is only the lyrics or also the melody. It says on the contract poem, but in the letter that he received back from Jack Mahoney, it also mentions number. So it's unclear. However, it is clear that he submitted a song called Blue Moon and that he got a contract and a letter back from Jack Mahoney saying, hey, 
I want to sell your song, you got to send me like 30, 25 bucks or something like that. So don't forget to send me 25 bucks in the mail. <laughs> don't forget to, I think it was an installment. So he's like, you got to send 10 bucks up front or whatever. Apparently, Edward Roman never signed the contract. Unclear why. To me, it, the letter kind of reads like a scam. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'd be a little skeptical if I got that in the mail. Like, oh, I submitted my song in good faith, and now you want me to pay you? Like, I don't even know if this is going to work out for me. Uh, maybe he didn't have the money at the time. He was just a teenager. So for whatever reason, he didn't, he didn't sign the contract. And then... A number of years later, uh, around 1935 or 6, he apparently heard the song on the radio and was like, uh, that's my song. And he ended up suing Rodgers and Hart, Jack Mahoney, and MGM for stealing his song. Um, this actually did happen. We have documentation that a lawsuit was brought against them by Edward Roman. Unfortunately... <laughs> She has not been able to find, like, the terms of the settlement, because they did settle outside of court, it appears, and a sum of money was paid to him in between 1000 to $1,500. Again, it's unclear how much was paid, but it is clear that some was paid, which I feel like is a bit of an admission of guilt. Why would they pay him if there was absolutely no evidence that he'd written the song? The other sad thing is that she doesn't have a copy of his manuscript and i think the reason is that during the lawsuit they probably used it as evidence and then who knows what happened to it after that or it might have been part of the terms that, that yeah, yeah 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 that too yeah. and she also sadly like she spoke to her father about it one time but before he died she never like really went back and was like okay dad like tell me tell me the gist but it's also possible that was terms of the settlement too that like he didn't like he couldn't go around claiming he wrote the song right so pretty interesting right and for a thing that we just a few minutes ago referred to as basically a folk song (laughs) (laughs) it's clearly clearly a little bit more complex in terms of its authorship and attributions Mm -hmm. yeah it's interesting to me to think about a piece of music that has this kind of simplistic but still present astronomical imagery that has this very very broad appeal bob dylan talks about it in his book and he calls it universal Mm -hmm. right so Mm -hmm. that's about as broad as you can get and you know these are things that we tend to associate with as being we tend to think of these as things that are sort of beyond human concern right the idea of a universal song about loneliness turning into not loneliness and joy that this be to to such an extent that the moon changes its appearance Mm. and responds right like these are such huge things that are beautiful and nice and you know why are we having this conversation? Well, we're having this conversation about a thing that comes out of this mire of of lawsuits and disagreement over authorship and like you know it's it, it's it's authorship that sounds like 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 
why did Rodgers and Hart even care, right? Like this song, they have like a thousand million songs that they're making plenty of money off of. And for some reason, this one that had a, no place in any commercial product that they tried to push, mm. you know, somehow becomes part of this thing. And of course, though, then it does become wildly popular. And I'm just sort of struck by the contrast between the mundane history of the song you know, this very American 20th century story, right? And the supposed universality of its imagery and messaging. Mm. I feel like there's a moral in that somewhere. I don't know what it is, but it just, to me, it, it makes the song feel loaded in a way that I never really thought of before and that... I kind of don't want to think about it because I like yeah. the universal parts of it. I think it's kind of nice. Hmm. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's true. It's like the song seems so just innocent, right? And maybe that is a bit of a moral that like all art is like has to come out of ha- out of the crap somehow. Oh, God. You know, <laughs> human existence is not always pretty. And yet, somehow, these beautiful little gems emerge despite that, or even because of that. That's true. And at least it's a gem that is not preoccupied with the crap, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) I'm thinking of in Twin Peaks, you have to shovel yourself out of the shit. (laughs) Blue Moon shoveled itself out of the shit. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Huh. That's funny. Well, and, and as it should, I mean, honestly, the message of the song is nice, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yes, you would like to live in a world where everyone gets their due. And I mean, I, I totally, I'm, I, I support that 100%. But I also do like the idea that the song remains nice and it remains kind of innocent as an object. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's something that you can hear in the diversity of arrangements that exist of the thing Mm. you know there's all of these soft pretty ones there's the famous one the marcells the marcells the doo-wop version which is the only one that i can ever think of in my head when the song when it (laughs) say blue moon to me and i and all i can think of is you know (laughs) Is is that? the kind of innocence we've been talking about with the song is one reason why I can I don't find it far-fetched to think of a I think 19 year old guy writing it because like is that how old he would have been yeah Yeah. something like that and what he said to his daughter is that he was actually not inspired by the phrase you know once in a blue moon he was actually inspired by he was going ice skating at night and he saw the moon reflecting off of the ice Mm. and it looked blue and he thought that that was such a poetic image and you know of course being a teenager probably you know 
young love or dreaming of young love, you know, it seems plausible to yeah. me. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Well, and it also, it, you mentioned it earlier, that resonates with the origin of the Moonlight Sonata associations, mm. right? Not the moon directly, but the moon being reflected. Mm. Um, yeah. A lot of reflections here. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, human emotion being reflected off the moon or yeah. the moon reflected off ice. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. I mean, the lyrics themselves are not super specific, but they're also not super general. However, if you start thinking about, especially like the the B section, right, where the music changes in the middle. And suddenly. And suddenly. <laughs> it's kind of weird because if you're just taking it literally, it it is not a thing that could happen. You know, the moon is blue one minute, you're sad, and then suddenly there appears a love that was not there <laughs> a moment before. You hear a whisper in your ear, please adore me, and then everything changes, despite the fact that the music goes back to that, that A section, that, that tune that was at the beginning. So it feels like an arrival, and yet everything has been changed by this bizarre event. To me... I mean, you could either interpret that metaphorically, right? That it feels sudden when love appears in your life where you were not expecting it before. But if you're taking it literally, to me, it's like a dream. This is stuff that happens in dreams all the time. Like, suddenly things are different, and yet you just accept it, right? Oh, yeah, well, well of course my love is here. I was just alone, and now I'm not alone, you know? That's just how it goes. Yeah, although the metaphoric interpretation also is, it, 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 it works with that too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, if you are in a situation and you're like, la la la, here's this person. Oh my God, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this whole time, <laughs> I was lost <laughs> and searching and oh, <laughs> look at who's in front of my eye. It was all the solution was here all along. <laughs> I mean, it's like a cinematic thing. Yeah. A little bit. Hmm. True. You got your lighting change. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The dream world and the cinematic world are not necessarily different. True. Hmm. Maybe that's why they had such a hard time figuring out what movie <laughs> to put it in. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, and it's been in a number of movies, too. Wasn't yeah. it in Greece? Well, once it gets famous, it yeah. becomes a... It becomes its own. It gets like a second life, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's funny to think of the other lyrics going with that because to me, they're just, they. how could it be different? And yet it really was. Like they wrote three different lyrics for it on vastly different topics. Yeah. And it's also funny because according to the anecdotal evidence that I found in the books, Lorenz Hart hated the song. And... I don't know whether it's because he tended to write lyrics that were, you know, very specifically grounded in whatever he's working on, what performer he's working with, and he just had no interest in writing something that was for general popular appeal, or whether it's because he didn't write the song to begin with and he was just a little <laughs> bit bitter that it became really popular. Oh, burn. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean no disrespect to Lorenz Hart. He was an excellent songwriter, or lyricist and poet, but... 
it is what it is. It is what it is. No, and that's a, a kind of response that makes sense. It's understandable. This also sort of tracks with the fact that we haven't really talked about the song's musical structure or mm-hmm. content or, or we well at all i mean like it's the structure is standard for the time this yeah. kind of aaba thing right but also the musical ingredients of the song are really prosaic and that's fine i mm-hmm. mean you know i mean the chord progression itself is extremely common we were just playing it earlier and I mean, it's, um, it's heart and soul. It's, it's, it's heart and soul. <laughs> it's also the same chord progression and don't stop believing. Like, there are a thousand songs, if there is one, that has that chord progression. Yeah. I mean, I will say, so I mentioned Bob Dylan before. So this is one of the songs that Dylan talks about in his recent book, The Philosophy of Modern Song. Mm-hmm. And he, he does draw attention to its melody. And the melody, actually, I do think is... A little bit interesting, in part yeah. because I mean he goes on a little bit about how how beautiful and Debussyan <laughs> it is, which I think might be a little bit of an overstatement. Yeah. But it is an interesting melody in that it's of a species where you basically stay on one note for a long time, right? There's a little wiggle, but it's like that's that's over. I think two full rotations of the chord progression that you have that one note before it finally goes down. So it actually, it it does, it has this kind of nice, it's a simple shape, but it's an elegantly decorated simple shape. Yeah. And actually, if we can get a little music theoretical here, the chord progression, it's like a, a series of chords separated by thirds. So you got C, A minor, F, and then you have G, and then that leads back to the C. So, depending on which key you're in. Depending on which key you're in. If you're in the key of C, then that's how it goes. Um, And that kind of descent by thirds is also in the melody because it's like, it's it's really a sequence after the first, like, leap down and up. And you have this one melodic motif that starts out on orbiting around g let's say orbiting you say (laughs) and then you have it down a third orbiting around e and then down a third orbiting around c yes yeah we would say it outlines the tonic triad yeah Yeah. exactly so it's like it's interesting because it's a sequence that goes down by skips down by thirds yes this is a motivic parallelism oh Mm -hmm. okay Mm -hmm. all right yes (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> stow that one away for yeah. your next party uh-huh yeah but it is i mean all that highfalutin theory talk aside it, these are also not fancy things right no. these are also things that happen in many many pieces of music um but i i do like i like it it gives it a really nice oh shape because to me it sounds just like you were saying it really stays around it really like you know lingers on a certain note for a while and then it just like slowly like settles yeah because we end around c which is the tonic which is the home note but it only does that and it's nice because because of its bigger structure it only does that during the second strain right the first one it kind of helps itself turn around again sure so it is it's a very large-scale settling i mean that's a 19th century melodic strategy mm. it's the kind of thing shanker made a big deal out of oh. um 
<laughs> and like for the record, like you know, I say it's prosaic, but that doesn't mean it's bad. That doesn't <laughs> mean that it's like uninteresting or not good. If we think about how it rose to popularity, it rose to popularity as a pop song, yeah, right, as a pop and as a pop song in multiple incarnations, right. Dean Martin's version is not the same as the Marcells, <laughs> right. Yeah. Two two very different takes on the song that both become popular mm-hmm. in in radically different styles. So you know sometimes a generic structure is actually profoundly powerful because then you can adapt it to be in different styles and then convey different meanings. I mean, the the doo-wop version is so happy and fun and mm-hmm. playful, right? You know, whereas the Dean Martin version is very cool in a technical yeah. sense, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then other people kind of take it as a basis for basically improvisation, yeah. like adding all kinds of flourishes and ornaments in the voice or making more complex chords. Um, adding fun piano parts. Um, I mean, that's the joy of a generic structure. You can make it weird. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And some people do. Yeah, yeah. That's what universal means, right? That <laughs> there's something abstract that remains, but every person that does it has their own personality in it. This is a song about a person talking to the moon. Right? And it's like, we all live under the moon. We do. We all see it. (laughs) And, you know, if you're out on a funny feeling winter night looking at the moon reflecting in the ice, you know, I don't know, you'll read into that how you read into it. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? It's an image that's at once familiar, but also potentially incredibly unique to your own situation absolutely like we all see the same moon but it's gonna look different to all of us depending on what eyes we're looking at it through yeah